Well, good morning. It's uh, nice for me to be here. Nice to escape Ohio for a few days. Uh, there was a snowstorm that was uh, coming the day that I left. So it's nice, uh, nice to be out here in, in sunny uh, Southern California again. Um, we just sang a song about Christ uh, being our cornerstone. And uh, Peter, uh, whose name means the rock, uh, who Jesus said, you're the rock on whom uh, I will build my church. Uh, Peter said in, in uh, 1 Peter that uh, Christ is the cornerstone, but that we are living stones and that he's, he's the foundation and that we're being built up as a, as a living temple uh, for God himself. So uh, that, that song is, uh, is really meaningful to me. So thank you, our worship team, for uh, leading us in worship this morning. Um, today I want to talk about something that I've been working on for, for a long time. And I need to give credit to God for um, the discoveries that have been made. Um, when I started this project, I had no idea uh, where it would go or, or where it would lead. Uh, there were um, a number of problems uh, with this sandstone for creationists. Um, as we'll see in a few moments, there are a number of uh, evolutionists and scoffers who use the Coconino sandstone as a case in point to prove how foolish creationists are and how stupid creationists are for thinking that this sandstone was, was laid down by water uh, during Noah's flood. But a little bit of background. Um, I'm not a uh, preacher. I'm a, I'm a scientist and I'm a teacher. So usually I'm every day in the, in the classroom or in the laboratory uh, teaching uh, geology students and, and other uh, undergraduate students and so forth. So um, this is going to be a little bit different uh, chapel message for you today, but I do have some biblical um, application that we're going to tie in. But uh, the Coconino sandstone is, is one of the most recognizable uh, rock layers in the Grand Canyon, and I hope that all of you have been to the Grand Canyon at one, one time or another, uh, or I hope that that's on your bucket list. Uh, it's an amazing place uh, to go and to see. But uh, the, the Coconino sandstone is just a couple layers down from the top. It's a nice uh, white layer. It's easy, easy to pick out, and it's well-known. Uh, it's in a number of uh, geological textbooks. And most uh, geological textbooks, when you read about the Coconino sandstone, they'll tell you that this sandstone was a, uh, used to be an ancient desert. And so this sandstone represents fossilized, desert sand dunes. And that's the reason that um, most evolutionists pick this sandstone as an example for how foolish creationists are. Uh, most creationists believe many of the layers that you see right there in the Grand Canyon were made during Noah's flood. And the Coconino sandstone, I think, was deposited right in the middle of the flood, about halfway through uh, the flood described in Genesis. So how in the world could we have a fossilized desert sand dune deposit right in the middle of the flood? And a number of evolutionists have picked up on that and, and poked fun at creationists uh, for, for believing this. And so there was a necessity for somebody to, to step forward and study the sandstone and to, to see if uh, it could be interpreted uh, some other way. Uh, this uh, sandstone is, uh, does not have flat layers in it. Most of the time when you look at uh, rock layers, the layers are flat. But this sandstone has angled layers in it like this. And we call those angled layers cross beds. 
And in a desert setting, those cross beds would be right here. This is a sand dune. And the, the sand is blown up one side of the sand dune and then avalanches down the other side of the sand dune, making these cross beds. And a number of evolutionists have said that this sandstone represents uh, uh, these uh, fossilized sand dunes. And the cross beds in here are the remnants of the sand dunes that used to be in an ancient desert. So that's one of the most uh, characteristic, uh, uh, one of the most outstanding characteristics that you see of this sandstone when you first see it are these cross beds. Now just a little bit of background. Um, the Coconino sandstone is, is most recognizable in the Grand Canyon, but it extends out across the United States. And uh, recently I've been doing some work trying to map out the, the full extent of it. And uh, it's located here in Arizona, but as you go to other parts of the United States, it, uh, it you, can, you can physically trace this out. And so it's a very widespread formation. Uh, in the Grand Canyon, it's about 300 feet thick, but it does get thinner and thicker uh, in some of these um, other places. Now, because uh, the Coconino sandstone is thought to be a desert deposit, um, a number of geologists have told us what the Coconino sandstone is supposed to look like based on what desert sand dunes look like. And so you'll pick up uh, the scientific literature or you'll pick up a book about the Grand Canyon and you'll read in there about what the characteristics of this sandstone are supposed to be. And so first thing, desert uh, sand, if you go to a, a sand dune and pick up a handful of sand, all the sand grains will be about the same size. So if you look at the sandstone under a microscope, it should look like this. This is not coconino, but uh, this is a sand that's fairly well sorted. In other words, all the sand grains are about the same size. Um, because it's also made in a desert, um, most scientists uh, look at desert sands and they see that the sand grains are fairly well rounded. And that means that uh, there aren't any sharp edges or anything like that in the sand grains but they're, they're nice and round like the sand grains over here. So in the textbooks, you'll read that the Coconino sands are also supposed to be like this, uh, very well rounded with all the corners uh, broken off and so on. If you go to a modern desert, uh, you will find out that um, on the backside of sand dunes that it's fairly steep. And if any of you have uh, walked around out on sand dunes or something like that, you'll find out it's very difficult to even climb um, up this face of a sand dune right here. And that's because that, that angle right there is about 33 degrees. And so it's fairly steep, and as you climb up it, the sand will avalanche down, and it's like taking two steps forward and one step back. You, can't, you just can't climb up that sand uh, face very easily. Well, that angle is very characteristic. It's called the angle of repose, and it's about 33 degrees. And so... The Coconino is supposed to have very steep angles of the, of the cross beds in it as well because this is the angle that we measure in desert sand dunes. So you'll pick up the uh, textbooks and so forth and they'll tell you the cross bed dips in the Coconino are very steep, just like they are in modern deserts. Um, there are two uh, minerals uh, that are fairly uh, uh, characteristic and easy to find under the microscope. Uh, this flat mineral right here is a, is a picture under the microscope. That's a piece of mica. And there's a couple different types of mica, but mica is fairly flexible. You can bend it easy and so on, and it's uh, really thin. You can peel it apart in little sheets. 
uh, mica is not supposed to be present in desert sand dunes. And I've been to a number of sand dune fields and looked at the sand, and, and there's not a lot of mica in that sand. And so you can even find in the literature uh, where scientists have said the Coconino does not contain any mica. And so it's not supposed to be in there. The other thing that's not supposed to be in the, in the uh, Coconino are minerals like dolomite. And uh, these uh, little circles that you see here, uh, this is again under the microscope, uh, that's the mineral dolomite. And dolomite is a mineral that forms in a marine setting in the ocean. And so you shouldn't expect to see minerals like that in the, in the Coconino. Um, the other thing that the Coconino is supposed to have, it's supposed to have some mud cracks at its base. Uh, so here are some sand dunes out in Death Valley, and you can see this little uh, lake right here that's dried up, and you can see the mud cracks under here. And so the Coconino is supposed to have maybe some evidence of mud cracks um, underneath of it. Um, the other thing that you should see in desert sands are lots of footprints. So there's lots of little lizards and snakes and things like that that crawl around through the desert sand. And so if you look in the, in the Coconino sand, you can see some evidence of that. And the last thing that you might be able to see in the Coconino sand are raindrop prints. And here are some raindrop prints in mud. And notice raindrop prints in mud make nice craters. And here are some raindrop prints in sand. Uh, notice that raindrop prints in loose sand don't make craters, but they make kind of this uh, dimpled-like surface. So finally, if it rained in the Coconino Desert, we might expect to see uh, some raindrop prints. So, what is my biblical application going to be today? Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like, to, like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's uh, toward the end of your scriptures. And uh, I'll talk, talk about this a little bit now, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up in about a half hour uh, with this passage as well. Um, the book of 2 Peter is, is really interesting, and, and along with the book of 1 Peter, uh, Peter is writing to people that were going through a tremendous number of trials. And if you look through these two books, you'll find uh, uh, reference to trials or suffering and and things like that um, over and over again. So Peter was writing to some people that were uh, really under some distress. And this uh, third chapter, uh, the last chapter in Second Peter, uh, is a chapter of prophecy. Uh, Peter is telling us what's going to go on in the last days. And Peter says that knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come scoffing in the last days. They will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. So what does that mean? It means that people are going to come and make fun of us. They're going to poke fun at us and say, you know, you're going down the wrong track, or you are so stupid or so foolish uh, for being a Christian. You're so stupid or foolish for believing this or that about the Scriptures. And notice what he says in verse 5. Um, Peter says that in the last days, these scoffers are going to deliberately overlook. And I really like how the King James translates this. The King James says that they will be willfully ignorant. So what are the two things that these scoffers uh, will be willfully ignorant of or that they will deliberately overlook in the last days? There's two things. Uh, notice there in verse 5, the first thing that they're going to deliberately overlook is that God created the heavens and the earth. So Peter is saying in the last days, uh, these scoffers are going to refuse to look at the evidence for the creation. 
and, and what's happened in the last few hundred years, uh, uh, especially with the publication of Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. And uh, people have used science to claim that the Bible is not true. They believe the theory of evolution. They believe that we've evolved from non-living things. And they've completely thrown out the word of God in Genesis chapter 1 where it says that God created the heavens and the earth and that God created life and that God created man. Peter is saying in the last days, these scoffers are going to come and they're going to deliberately overlook these facts. They're going to close their eyes. They're going to refuse to look at the evidence for these things. And then what's the second thing Peter says that these scoffers are going to deliberately overlook? The second thing is the fact of Noah's flood. And so Peter says in the last days, there's going to be scoffers that are going to make fun of you for believing the fact that God judged the earth and judged sin with a flood that covered the whole world. And so Peter says, this is coming. This is coming in the last days. So hold your place there. We'll come back uh, to this passage um, in a few moments. Now, what are some things that, uh, what are some of these scoffers saying? So let me read uh, some quotes to you about some of these scoffers. Um, this is a, a author called uh, Arthur uh, Strayler, and he wrote a book um, criticizing creationists, and he says this about the Coconino sandstone. He says, Exposed in the walls of the Grand Canyon is the Coconino formation of Permian age. The evidence is overwhelming in support of major periods of time in which this region was an inland location and exposed in the atmosphere under dry conditions. This is an environment totally incongruous with the flood scenario. The evidence of subarea origin of the dune sand formation is undisputed as to its significance by mainstream geology. And listen to what he says. It, in itself, it is sufficiently weighty to totally discredit the biblical story of the flood of Noah as a naturalistic phenomenon occurring in one year. So this author says the Coconino sandstone in itself is sufficient evidence to totally disregard scripture. That's not all. Here are some other scoffers. Uh, this one is a, a more recent uh, scoffer. His name is Stephen Newton. Uh, he works for the NTSE. Uh, some of you may have heard of that uh, organization. It's an anti-creationist uh, organization. And he said this in Earth Magazine. He said, The Coconino sands stick in the eye of the creationist model. Creationists are deeply committed to washing away this irritating formation by arguing that the Coconino could have been deposited in a marine environment after all. And so guys like Strayler and guys like Newton are claiming that the Coconino has steep crossbeds, that it has well-rounded sand, that the sand is well-sorted and everything else, but they've never looked at it. They've never looked at it under the microscope or have done the scientific work uh, to see what it really looks like. Uh, here's somebody else, uh, Christopher Weber in 1980, in the very first uh, edition of Creation Evolution, which is an anti-creationist uh, publication. Uh, he said this, you don't need a PhD in geology to know that desert dunes and other desert deposits do not form under roaring floodwaters. These require not only time, but also dry land. The flood of Noah supplies neither. The Permian Coconino sandstones in the upper walls of the Grand Canyon have well-frosted, ha have frosted, well-sorted, well-rounded sand grains found only in land-deposited sand dunes. And so again, this guy is making fun of creationists for believing that the Coconino sandstone is a desert deposit, or thinks that co the Coconino is a flood deposit. 
And then uh, this person uh, has several YouTube videos out, and uh, uh, she says this in a very mocking way. Of all the rocks in the Grand Canyon, the stratum most likely to make a young earth creationist, and I can't tell you what the words are in a chapel setting like this, is the Coconino, and here's why. The consensus of geologists is that the Coconino sandstone was formed in an enormous desert. Obviously, a desert in the midst of your giant deluge is inconvenient. And uh, she is quite crude. Um, but uh, again, uh, uh, clearly another, another scoffer about this formation. Um, Davis Young and Ralph Sturley have also written about the Coconino, and they wrote a book called The Bible Rocks in Time. Uh, they are Christians, but they argue that the earth is, is extremely old and that we should trust radioactive dating and evolution and things like that. And in this book, again, they talk about the Coconino sandstone and the Navajo sandstone and other units and argue that these are clearly uh, desert deposits based on uh, well-sorted sand, well-rounded sand, and, and other types of things. And so uh, these two guys um, argue as well that the Coconino and the Navajo and, and things like that are clearly Aeolian dunes. And they talk about, um, again, the Coconino having very steep uh, crossbed dips. Now, so what, what did I do? Well, I got together with a couple guys who were also other geologists, and we decided to go tackle this formation. Uh, we weren't sure of what we were going to find, uh, but uh, what we did is we prayed. And we asked God, you know, lead us to the outcrops that you want us to study. Uh, help us to collect the samples that you want us to find. And, uh, you know, show us the truth about what's out there. And uh, so there's quite a few of us that, that got together and, and we did uh, library work. Uh, we did extensive field work. We spent uh, several summers out in the field looking at uh, Coconino sandstone out, outcrops and, and uh, looking at uh, the rock in the field. We also did quite a bit of laboratory work uh, with our samples. Uh, Sarah Meifel over here was, was part of that as she was an undergraduate at Cedarville. Uh, looked at a whole series of microscope slides on, on the Coconino. And then... After we uh, did our studies, we presented these results. We presented the results at various scientific meetings uh, before creationists and, and before evolutionists as well, and we've written scientific papers on these things, uh, both for creationist journals and for secular journals. And this is how scientists work. Uh, scientists go out and collect data, we interpret the data, and then we present the data in various forums so that we can have it analyzed uh, by our peers. So. What does the Coconino sandstone actually look like? Well, the problem is nobody until us has studied the Coconino sandstone since the 1930s. And nobody has looked carefully at the Coconino sandstone under the microscope to see what it really looks like. And so all these things about the Coconino may not be the truth. In fact, what we found is that these are myths. These are urban legends that have been uh, put forth over and over again to say how foolish and stupid creationists are. So we took a close look at the Coconino and we found some surprising things. Uh, first of all, we started to measure the steepness of those crossbeds. And remember, desert uh, sand dunes are supposed to have crossbed dips right around 33 degrees. We started measuring all these things and they only have an average dip of 20 degrees. And so these uh, sand dune dips are not that steep after all. And it's a fairly simple thing to take your brunt and compass out in the field and measure these crossbed dips. Why hadn't anybody done that before? 
and, and instead they just keep propagating the myths over and over again that this sandstone had steep hills when it didn't. Uh, we read over and over in the literature that the sand grains were well sorted and that the sand grains were really round, just like you find in modern desert settings. Well, in modern deserts, the, the sand looks like that. So you have well-rounded and well-sorted sand. There's very car- various uh, criteria that geologists use to determine this. When we started looking at the Coconino, we found that the Coconino sand was subangular. So in other words, there's lots of little corners on the edges of the sand grains, and it wasn't very well-sorted. Here are some pictures of the Coconino sand. So uh, this, again, is under the microscope, and these are sand grains that you're looking at under the microscope, and you can see these sand grains have sharp corners on them. And if this was a desert sand, you would not expect that. And as well, if this was a desert sand, you would expect most of the sand grains to be all about the same size. And you can see here's an example of sand grains that are very different in size. You wouldn't expect to see something like this in a desert. But nobody knew this because nobody had looked at the sandstone under the microscope until we did. Another myth was that there were giant mud cracks under the Coconino. Uh, this uh, formation down here is called the Hermit Formation. And these are the cross beds. You can see the cross beds of the Coconino sandstone up above. And one of the first projects I did was begin to look at these uh, supposed mud cracks right here. I started this work. Uh, actually when I was in in graduate school in the late 1990s and then uh, continued it in the early 2000s. And so the report was that these were giant mud cracks. And so I started to look at these and I thought, well, if if, uh, this brown formation had dried up in these giant mud cracks and opened, and then the story was the Coconino sands blew in and filled up these mud cracks, you should expect nice layered rock inside these, uh, these vertical mud cracks right here. Well, as I started looking at these things, I didn't find any nice layered rock. Instead, all the layers were vertical inside. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what a mud crack looks like. And as I I further studied uh, these uh, things, I I measured how long they were and uh, found out some other uh, interesting things. And I found out that I couldn't explain these as mud cracks. And instead, I'll go back one slide here. Instead, what happened was is that the Coconino sand actually became liquefied and was injected downward into this formation. And in order for the Coconino sand to be liquefied, it has to be full of water. It can't be in a desert setting to to happen like that, but it has to be full of water. And it became liquefied during an earthquake. And here's a map that I made. This is the the Grand Canyon right here, this this dark line. And these uh, triangles represent the, the length or the, the depth of these cracks. And you can see they're all really long sand-filled cracks right near this red line. That's the Bright Angel Fault. And what happened was as this Bright Angel Fault moved, uh, the sand became liquefied and filled in the cracks during a big earthquake. And as you go away from the fault, uh, you find out that the cracks disappear. The cracks are only associated with that big fault. And Again, this showed evidence that the Coconino was um, uh, something other than what was being uh, described in the, in the scientific literature. Another myth that was uh, put forth were, were that the uh, footprints in the Coconino were all made as these little lizards crawled up desert sand dunes. 
Well, my professor and the professor of these three guys sitting over here as well uh, studied these footprints, and he thought it'd be a good idea to actually take uh, little lizards and stuff like that and do some experiments with them and see what the footprints looked like as they climbed up little sand dunes and other things. And he let these little guys uh, crawl up sand dunes, dry sand. He wetted the sand and let these guys crawl up uh, wet sand or damp sand. And then he got the brilliant idea to have these guys crawl up sand that was underwater. So he made a, a little sand dune underwater in an aquarium and let these guys uh, crawl up the sand in the aquarium. And guess what? Those footprints that were made underwater best matched the footprints that were actually found in the Coconino. And he um, started to uh, study the tracks very carefully and noticed that a lot of the uh, lizards actually went, not only went uphill, but as they went uphill, they went sideways. Did you catch that little animation there? Let me do that again. So this, this guy is going uphill, but he's actually being pushed sideways as well. And he um, was able to explain this uh, very unusual phenomenon along with some other things if, if these things were deposited underwater. So he thinks that maybe a current was pushing these things sideways as these things were trying to crawl up underwater sand dunes. And uh, Leonard Brand was able to publish this in, in the conventional literature in a very prominent journal uh, called Geology and uh, argued that the Coconino was made underwater. I took a look at a lot of the supposed raindrop prints in the Coconino. And again, here's what uh, raindrop prints look like in mud, and there's what raindrop prints look like in sand. But the raindrop prints in the Coconino were really unusual. And here are some of them right here. You can see these little dimples in the formation. There's some more little dimples right here and some other little dimples right here. All the raindrop prints that we could find most of the time were in lines. And I'm thinking, well, when it rains, the rain equally covers everything. It doesn't go in lines. And so we don't think these are raindrop prints. We're not sure what they are, but they're certainly not raindrop prints. So it's a, another myth that there were lots of raindrop prints in the Coconino. Um, over and over, we read in the literature that the Coconino sand grains were frosted. And indeed they are. Here are some Coconino sand grains right here. And what frosting means is that if you put a Coke bottle out in the desert and let the sand blow on the Coke bottle, the, the glass will no longer become be clear. It'll be frosted. It'll have this uh, you know, coating on it. It'll, the glass will be deformed by the sand grains blowing against it and so forth. And the frosting also happens to sand grains. But uh, so, we, so we looked at the frosting under the microscope and weren't quite sure how to interpret it, but then uh, I ran across a couple papers where some guys had done experiments with sand grains in the laboratory. And they found out that only large sand grains get mechanically frosted. And the Coconino actually has small sand grains. Uh, the sand grains aren't big enough to become frosted mechanically. And so we, we looked at the sand grains under the uh, scanning electron microscope right here, and we figured out that the frosting was not made mechanically, but it was made chemically. So it's a chemical process that's, that's making the uh, frosting. And so the frosting did not happen by uh, the sand getting blown around in the desert. Another myth uh, that, that we uncovered was that we found these large folds in the Coconino sandstone. Remember the Coconino has crossbeds in it. So these are, these are some of the crossbeds down here. But then we found these large folds right here. And uh, those of you 
that uh, have fond memories of algebra and geometry? Do you remember what parabolas are? Okay. So this is a parabola, but it's a parabola that's turned on its side. And we have a special name for that. It's called the parabolic recumbent fold. And we started to find these things in many different places around the Sedona area. And these types of folds can only form underwater. And here's another parabolic recumbent fold. And uh, you can see how the rock has been around in this parabola shape uh, right here. And here's how it happens. This is the normal cross bedding right here. But as the, the water current is flowing in that direction, the current can be strong enough sometimes. And there's some other things that happen too. But if the current is strong enough, it can actually pick those cross beds up and flip them right over into the parabola shape. And that can't happen in a desert. This is very, very characteristic of underwater uh, deposition. And, and in fact, very good evidence of very strong water uh, flowing in a particular direction. Another thing that we found in the Coconino is that the Coconino had a lot of dolomite in it. And dolomite is a particular mineral that only forms in marine settings. And so here are some uh, dolomite beds, pure dolomite beds that we found in the Coconino. Uh, we also found these things uh, called dolomite ooids. Sorry for all the fancy geological terms today, but that's what they're called. Uh, they're about the size of little BBs. They're little balls. And uh, if you go to the Bahamas or some other places like that, you can find in the beach sand these little round bits of, uh, of rock that, that, that form by just rolling around in the surf. And we found these in the Coconino. And again, these, these are made of dolomite, which only forms in, only thought to form in a marine setting. Um, the other thing that we found a lot of was mica. And we cut a lot of thin sections. Uh, we collected a lot of rock samples and cut them to make real thin slices so we could look at them under the microscope. And in almost every microscope slide that we found, we found little bits of mica. And here's a mica flake right here. And the thing about mica is it's very soft. And so if mica is getting blown around in the desert, um, the mica will actually get chewed up and, and disappear and it shouldn't last. But in deposits that are made in water, uh, like a, in an ocean deposit or something like that, mica is very prominent. You can find uh, this very commonly in, uh, in some of those sands. And we found a lot of mica in the Coconino. And then the last thing is that a lot of people don't realize this, but there are really big sand dunes that occur underwater. If you go to a place like San Francisco Bay, here's the Golden Gate Bridge. And by the way, the San Andreas Fault that goes right through this area also goes right under the Golden Gate Bridge up there in, in uh, Central California. And you can look at the seafloor out here, and the seafloor has these big sand underwater sand dunes. They're called sand waves. And they're made by very strong currents that flow in and out of the bay right there. Uh, this right here is a underwater image of Long Island Sound in New York. And again, you can see the very same thing. These are sand waves. These are underwater sand dunes. And just to give you an idea how big these are, see that little blip right there that I have circled in red? That's a, a shipwreck that's the length of a football field. And so this is a really big section of Long Island Sound. And these are big sand waves. These are big underwater sand dunes under there. And we think this is a really good model for how 
the, uh, the coconino uh, crossbeds might have formed. So what did we do? We, looked, we went out and we actually did the science. We found out what the coconino sandstone actually looked like. And we have found a number of things that contradicts the conventional view or the evolutionary view of how the coconino sandstone formed. Now, what, is, what has been the response? Well, conventional geologists aren't too happy with what we found. The Coconino sandstone is supposed to be one of the formations that proves how stupid and foolish creationists are. And in fact, they want the Coconino sandstone to be a desert deposit because it goes into all their models of the past that they make. They want to say that the, that the period of time when the Coconino was laid down was a, a desert time uh, during the supercontinent of Pangaea, and they envision this uh, huge desert spreading all the way across Pangaea. And in fact, there are sandstones very much like the Coconino, not only here in the United States, but in England and in Europe and in other places around the world that are very, very similar to the Coconino. And so they say there's this huge desert in the past. Well, if the Coconino was deposited underwater, we don't have a huge desert covering the continent. What do we have covering the continent? We have an ocean covering the continent with very strong currents in it. And I think this is very consistent with the story of Noah's flood that we read in, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. And so instead of this being a desert sand dune deposit, we have found some great evidence that this was a deposit that was made underwater. And it's very consistent with the story that we read in Genesis. Now, let's uh, turn back in your Bibles uh, to 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. We talked about in the beginning of uh, my talk about how in the last days that scoffers were going to come. And I showed you some of the quotes from some of those scoffers, in particular uh, reference to the Coconino Sandstone. Uh, they used the Coconino Sandstone as a case in point for how foolish creationists are. And so what has been our response? Well, we had to get out there and do some scientific work. And not all the time, uh, science is easy. I mean, it's, it's something that requires some work. But as a scientist, when I go out and investigate a sandstone or Dr. Francis uh, investigates various things in biology, we can find some really incredible things. And you know what one of our responses is when we find those incredible things? It's to worship the genius of the creator. And uh, it, it, as, as we work as a scientist and in, as we investigate uh, the earth and as we investigate life, our response is, uh, the proper response is to, to worship uh, our cornerstone, to worship the one who made it all. Uh, in some of the scripture passages that were read uh, during the worship time, one of the passages says uh, was from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who called all things into existence. Jesus Christ was the part of the Godhead that called the creation into existence in Genesis chapter 1. And so part of our response as scientists is to worship uh, that creator. But the other thing is, as we think about Noah's flood and as we think about the Coconino sandstone, as we consider you know, that, that massive uh, display of rock in the Grand Canyon, what does the Grand Canyon really represent? Of course, when we go to the Grand Canyon, it's a beautiful sight to behold. Uh, 
Uh, we see the beautiful canyon there. You can oftentimes see the river uh, way down in the bottom. You get an appreciation of the scale and so forth as you hike in the Grand Canyon. But those rocks in the Grand Canyon, how did they get there? They got there as a result of God's judgment. And as you begin to, to realize the scope of some of these layers and the extent that some of these layers cover the earth, it's really sobering to understand the consequences of sin on our earth. And that we serve a righteous God, and He you know, requires uh, justice. And so as you look at these layers, it's, it's oftentimes sobering to think about that these layers cover the earth. Everywhere on the earth is evidence of the flood. And Peter says that in the last days, these scoffers are going to come scoffing and following their own, their own evil desires. They're going to deliberately forget that the creation happened and that the flood happened. And I'd like to look at two messages that Peter is trying to communicate uh, to us in this, uh, in this chapter. The first message that Peter is communicating is to unbelievers. And I don't know if there's any unbelievers in here today. There may be, but uh, seeing this as a Christian college, I suspect that most of you are believers. But what Peter is saying is that by the word of God, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And by the word of God, the flood came on the earth and God judged sin. And Peter is also saying that by that same word, the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed and everything is going to come to an end. And Peter says to unbelievers that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. Um, he says in this passage that, of course, God is patient and he's willing to wait a long time for people to repent, but eventually that judgment is going to come. So if there's any unbelievers in here today, uh, that's the message that Peter has for you. Just as sure as he created the heavens and the earth, just as sure as he brought uh, the flood onto the earth, judgment's going to come. The second message uh, that, that Peter is trying to communicate uh, is to believers. And this is what I'd really like to hone in on today. Um, here's uh, some parts of this, this passage. Uh, Peter says to believers... Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the heavens and the earth, he's talking about the heavens and the earth melting, and uh, the new heavens and the new earth being created. Uh, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Um, you ought to live lives of holiness and godliness. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at, at peace. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's Peter trying to communicate to us as believers? Number one, he's encouraging us as the last days approach, as the end times come, and certainly we know that they're coming because these are certainly days that men are being willfully ignorant about the creation and the flood. We're here in those times. So what's Peter communicating to us? He's, he's telling us to be diligent, to, to be diligent, to be holy, to be diligent, to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why does he say to be diligent? Because these things are difficult. Uh, it's difficult to be a scientist in today's world. 
uh, when so many people oppose your worldview. It's difficult to be a Christian in today's world when there's so many different messages out there uh, to do this or do that or partake in this and partake in that. There's so many difficult things out there, but Peter says, yeah, we need to be diligent. And so that's my encouragement to you today. No matter what your uh, uh, discipline here is at Master's College, whatever your major is, whatever you're planning uh, to do uh, after you leave here or after you graduate here, uh, be diligent and serve the Lord and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these students here. I thank you for uh, each one of them that, that you've made it possible for them to be here today. I know that it's not easy uh, to go to a Christian college, and I just pray, Lord, that you would bless them in their time here. I, I pray for each one, Lord, that uh, you would just encourage them by this message today, that you would encourage them uh, to grow in your grace and your knowledge. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to be holy and to follow you with their whole heart. I pray, Lord, that they would be diligent in these things and that they would uh, just uh, seek you today. And uh, I pray, Lord, your blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen.